As always, hope you're excited. This song's getting me amped up. I'm excited. Hope you're glad to be here today. I hope you're glad to get in God's Word. So please open up your Bible and turn back to John chapter 5, page 890 in the Pew Bible. We went through verse 18 last week. We're going to step back a verse. I want to start today at verse 17, and we're going to work only through verse 23 this morning. John 5, 17 through 23. Why so few verses? Oh, because there's just so much rich revelation in these verses. This text is a, is a gold mine, but gold is difficult to mine. Gold has great value, but it takes great effort to get the gold. Uh, but it is that great value that makes that great effort worth it. I love Job chapter 28. I think we fail to often understand Job and what it's about. Uh, Job 28 really helps you understand what the book of Job is about. It's the heart of the story. Job is wisdom literature, and chapter 28 at the very heart of the book is all about wisdom. Job in that chapter dwells on the great genius and ingenuity of man and the great effort and persistence that mankind goes to to mine silver and gold and jewels. The thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. Right? It's, it's really hard, but man succeeds at it. But the very next verse, Job 28.12 says, But where shall wisdom be found? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Gold cannot equal it. The price of wisdom is above pearls, but it is hidden from the eyes of all living. See what Job has done? He has just laid out how amazing mankind is. Through great effort, it can mine and find and create things of great value. But wisdom, the thing of the most value, man doesn't even understand it. Man doesn't know its value. Man cannot even find it. And so Job laments, where shall wisdom be found? That's the point of the book of Job. Where shall wisdom be found? If it cannot be found by man, well, then it follows that it must be revealed to man. If it cannot be found by us, our only hope is revelation. Not our searching, but God's speaking. And that's what we have before us in John chapter 5. Revelation of the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. Therefore, Christ, as revealed in John chapter 5 in this wonderful word, is of infinite and inestimable value. I practiced that word because I messed it up. Inestimable value. Right? But to see that, to see the value of Christ... It's worth the effort that a text like this requires. Uh, we are here now in the deeps, so we need to think deeply. We, I, desperately need God's help with a text like this. But we often tend to think of John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, which we just read, and Hebrews 1 as the four great texts of the revelation of the divinity and the identity of Jesus. John chapter 5 should be on that list. There is so much here because we have before us here the most important thing. Last week, we're picking up a story you introduced last week. Last week, I said that what we're now seeing, we start a new section in John chapter 5. We're now seeing progressive revelation of the identity of Jesus, which is leading to progressive conflict with the opponents of Jesus. I made the case that Jesus is intentionally confronting them and he's intentionally provoking this conflict. And it is the healing of the man that we saw last week that is the setting for this conflict. The healing is not the point. 
the revelation that results from the healing and the conflict that results from the revelation is the point. Remember, Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath, knowing that that would provoke them. He commands the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, knowing that that was unlawful in their minds. So Jesus is confronting the Jewish leaders in John 5. And I want you to see that Jesus is also confronting you. That's the whole point of this book. And that's the whole point of this section. Who do you say that I am? And there's nothing more important than your answer to that question. Who do you say that Christ is? So we are seeing and hopefully some of us experiencing the confrontation that is the claim of Christ. Here's who he is. All right, now how are you going to respond to that? Here's who he is. Does your life reflect in any way a proper response to the revelation of the glory of who Christ is? That's the question I want us to all be asking ourselves as we go. Does your life, does your focus, does your joy in any way match the glorious revelation of the person of Jesus Christ? They are going to respond to the revelation with anger and a desire to kill him. How are you going to respond? So let's start by seeing who Jesus is according to John chapter 5. Remember the repeated refrain from last week, more than meets the eye. That's Christ. He is infinitely more than meets the eye. Do you know him as he is or as all of us have this tendency? Do you know him as you want him to be? And you can know which one you're doing uh, based upon our last point today. We're going to conclude with application, right? Do you honor him and worship him and value him as he is? Jesus is not a curiosity for you to study. He is no mere teacher. He is no mere miracle worker. He is not about your social justice calls. He is not here to make you feel better about yourself and give you what you think you want so that you can have the good life. He has come to confront you with his claims about himself and force you to respond one way or another. What are some of those claims? That's what this text is for. Uh, There are a number of them. We're going to run through a few. First, we want to see that Jesus is one with God. That's going to be our first and main point. Or you could just say Jesus is God, right? That's the first point. But then second, we're going to see also that Jesus is the Son of God. And we've got to figure out how one and two relate. But then third, we will see that Jesus is loved by God, followed forth by the fact that Jesus is the sovereign giver of life. Fifth, he's also the sovereign judge over death. And what if all that was true? What if those five points were true about who this Jesus is? Well, then point number six necessarily follows. You must worship and honor this Jesus. Six points. Is that too much? Uh, Not even close. Uh, Whatever my God ordains is right. God has ordained the length of this sermon. So let's, I'm joking. All right, let's allow ourselves to be confronted with the claims of Christ. If they're true, it is critical that we hear and believe. This Jesus is just so much more than you think that he is. He's so much more than I think that he is. He is so much more than I am going to be effectively communicate, uh, be able to effectively communicate to you today. But we're going to trust in his word. And we're going to trust that the spirit can work to communicate to you the glory of this Christ today. So let's ask the spirit to show us Christ. Let's seek to love him because he is life and we can never look at him and love him enough. Do you know this Christ? John 5 can help us. Let me read the text 
for us. We're picking up in verse 17. The Jewish leaders are mad at Jesus for this healing on the Sabbath. We pick up Jesus' response to them and their anger. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is and he all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one but he has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's stop there and let's pray uh, before we continue. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are not only the God who is, but that you are the God who speaks. You are the God who reveals who you are. And you reveal who you are most gloriously and most clearly in the revelation of your Son. Jesus Christ. Father, we have a wonderful revelation of Jesus before us uh, this morning. Father, I am not sufficient for the task at hand. Father, we ask that you would help us. Please help the preaching of your word. Help me to be clear. Father, help um, Christ uh, to be honored and magnified and glorified. We ask that you would also help the hearing and receiving of your word. Um, Father, give us attentiveness and focus. Father, give us delight in the word that reveals to us the one in whom you delight in. So, Father, please help us now. We ask that you would glorify your name. We ask that you would edify your people. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one. Jesus is one with God. That's the point of the text. Or you could just say that Jesus is God. Or we could put it in the terms that the Jews themselves put it in verse 18. Here's the problem in their mind. Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. How was he doing that? Back to the text. We set the stage last week. Remember, verses 1 through 8 are all about this supernatural healing of this invalid man. But the healing is not the point of the story. The healing is amazing enough. Jesus heals. Jesus is life. He speaks a word and muscle fibers leap into existence. Strength is supplied and dead, useless limbs leap into life and use. That's, that's amazing. Maybe we should consider the claims of someone who can speak a word and do that. Again, what if this is true? What if Jesus can actually do this? How would we live if there was actually this Jesus who could do these things? Maybe we would consider listening to him. But there's so much more going on because the healing is ultimately for the purpose of revealing. Right? The healing is the context, the backdrop for what we're now looking at. Yes, he has healed, but we saw the second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And that's the first indication. 
that there's something more going on here. The Jews, remember? Remember, not, it's not an ethnic term. It's not the Jews in general, but it's a political religious term. The, the Jewish religious authorities, the ones who are opposed to Jesus, they claim in verse 10 that it is not lawful for the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. They're wrong, but then in verse 16, they take and turn their attention and anger from the healed to the healer. This is why they were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Remember what Sabbath means? Sabbath means rest. Sabbath was the graciously given law of God that we were to take one day out of seven and devote it entirely to rest. What a gift. Here you go. I command you, rest. Yes, please. But they had messed with the rest. They had missed the rest and they had made it a work and had come up with all kinds of of rules and regulations about what you could and could not do. They had gone to great lengths to try and define what work was when it was actually quite simple. Work's your occupation. Work is your customary employment. It's how you made a living. God says, don't do that for one day. Rest and worship me for one day. It's wonderful. It's a blessing. We're going to talk about Sabbath here soon. But they had ironically and tragically made rest into work. And now they hear, see Jesus doing what looks to them like work on the Sabbath. And look at how Jesus responds. Here's what I don't like. I would have like defended myself. I would have done, no, 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 I wasn't working. You know, Jesus could have said, oh, no, that doesn't count. I was helping. I was healing. Or you've misunderstood the point of the Sabbath. Let me teach you about the true nature of the Sabbath as revealed to Moses in the book of... He doesn't do any of that. Look at his response in verse 17. He just makes it worse. But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now, and I am working. Again, purposely provocative. Intentionally confrontational. How? What is Jesus claiming? That's the main thing we're looking at this morning. The confrontational claims of Christ. And here he is claiming that he is one with God. Meaning that he is God. How does this statement claim that? Again, Jesus perfectly knew his audience. He knew that this was a question that was debated much by the Jews at the time. Remember, Genesis 2 tells us that God rested from his work on the seventh day. That is, the Sabbath. Well, they would argue and ask and wonder, if God rested, well, who keeps the universe running? Is God working? Um, well, if he is working, is God a Sabbath breaker? Is God breaking his own law? Right? How, how does this work? Well, of course God is not breaking the Sabbath. Uh, it's his Sabbath. Uh, they understood correctly and argued that God rested not from work period. God rested from his work of creation. Remember, you'll notice the seventh day. We have that uh, pattern for the first six days. Evening, morning, evening, morning. Not on the seventh day. There is no evening and morning on the seventh day. That's, that's significant. So, he's not resting, period. We're not deists. Right? We do not believe that God just got things started and then kind of stepped back and said, hey, you know, let's, let's see what happens here. And he just kind of sits back and watches. No, we do practically live sometimes as if we were deists most of the time. But... We often do not live as if God was actively ordaining and ordering and sustaining and guiding all things all the time. We would live differently if we believed that God was sovereignly, providentially ordering and directing and sustaining all the time. We would live peacefully and fearlessly 
if we believed that. And this is why we emphasize, and this is why you so desperately need the doctrine of God's providence. No pressure, Henry. This is why you guys should come to Sunday school next week, because this is one of my favorite chapters and one of my favorite doctrines. You need to know and rest in the providence of God. Yes, on the seventh day, God rested from his work of creation, but God never rests from his work of providence. Remember what it is? God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, governing every creature in every action. You see, God works continuously. He's God. You are breathing right now because of the preserving and governing providence of God. You are existing right now because of the preserving and governing providence of God. Everything that you do is because of the preserving and governing providence of God. You are entirely dependent on Him. God is always at work in all things. And the Jews recognized that, and the Jews agreed with that. Sabbath laws do not apply to God. God is above Sabbath regulations. God is always working. And into that context, Jesus says, and I am working. Right? He is claiming that which is and can be true only for God for himself. And the Jews understood this. That's why they wanted to kill him, because he was making himself equal with God. I am God. That's what he is saying in that verse. And it's a preposterous claim. It's a blasphemous claim, unless it's true. And thus, that's the claim that the whole rest of the conversation in this pivotal, pivotal chapter 5 seeks to establish. Which is why this is such an important chapter. Because, listen, this is the fundamental claim of the Christian faith. Jesus is God. Everything else relies and depends upon this. And if it's true, then your life relies and depends upon this. Your happiness relies and depends upon this. Your eternity relies and depends upon this. But how could this be true? This was the struggle for the Jews. They were ardent monotheists, and rightfully so. Remember the great foundational confession of Israel's faith, the Shema. Shema just means hear. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45.5. God very clearly says, I am the Lord. Yahweh. He's giving his name. I am Yahweh. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So there is one God. There is no other. And the Jews knew that. And they were correct. But here now, all of a sudden, is this Jesus, this man that they're staring at, claiming to be God. Again, understand the difficulty of this for them. And so what's What's going on? How do we reconcile this foundational truth that there is only one God with this foundational truth that Jesus is God? Well, the Trinity, of course. The Trinity is how we reconcile those. With the biblical understanding that our God is three in one. Remember what we've learned so far already about Jesus in this book. Very first verse, 1-1. One, one. He is the Word of God. And what do words do? Words reveal. We reveal ourselves through our words. God reveals Himself through His Word, Jesus Christ. And words relate. We relate to one another 
through our words. As we reveal ourselves to each other, we get to know one another, and relation results from revelation. Words reveal and relate. Jesus is the word of God. And then in 1.18, we read, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, the Son. He has made him known. Remember, no one has ever seen God. Wait a second, lots of people in the Old Testament saw God. They're seeing the Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus has come to reveal to us what God is like. Jesus has come to us to make clear that which is a little more clouded in the Old Testament. It's there, but then Jesus brings it out and makes it as clear as day. It's been described sometimes where it's like you walk into a room where the light's off. All the stuff's there. Nothing's changing. It's all there. You just can't see it very well. Then the light switch comes on. You're like, oh, right. Nothing changed. It was all there. But now you see it more clearly. That's the revelation that Jesus brings. I said it a lot in Sunday school for the last two weeks. God is not like us. We have to stop creating God in our own image. We are all so tempted to do this. We've got to stop assuming that he's a lot like us, you know, but just a little bit better than us. You know, he's like me, but a little bit better, so he's, he's God. No. He is the transcendent other. He is the first cause, the creator of all. Did you see what we read in Colossians 1? He's the sustainer. In him, all things hold together. Right? I've argued before that he's the theory of everything for you physics people. He's the perfect person. He is the great I am. He is, we are not. He's not like us. And therefore, we should expect there to be some mystery. We should expect there to be some things about the infinite, excellent God that stretches our finite, inferior minds. I don't even understand how my microwave works. Right? I don't even understand how to properly relate socially to normal people. Right? There's all these basic, simple things that I don't understand and I cannot comprehend. Right? I should expect then that my mind may struggle to grasp the mind. He is beyond me. It's silly if we think that we should be able to get every single thing about this transcendent God. He's not like us. He is Trinity. He is three in one. Is that mysterious? Of course. Is that illogical or contradictory? Absolutely not. We should expect mystery and majesty in the God who creates and sustains all of this and who knows All of this. He knows every single thought of the hundred people in this room at every single moment of time. He is perfectly present with every single one of us. Knows everything that you're doing, everything that you're thinking, everything that we're about to do. And just imagine the mind that is involved in all of that. Surely he must be unimaginably amazing. And he is. So again, I'm not going to try to spend a bunch of time defending the doctrine of the Trinity. The scripture doesn't do that. It just asserts it. Here it is. Our job is to accept it. There is one God, and He exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but these three are one God, the same in substance, and equal in power and glory. Shorter catechism. That's it. That's the Trinity. It's not that complicated. And that's what Jesus is beginning to reveal to us here for the first time. John has set the stage in the first chapter. Now Jesus himself is starting to do it. He's saying, I am God. I am one with the Father, one in essence and activity. My Father is working and I am working. So there's unity 
There is sameness uh, within the Godhead. That's our first point. Jesus is one with God. But there also must be some sort of distinctness within the Godhead. Here's where we need to be careful. We have, there's, there's these three persons I mentioned. And we see that in our text as well. Point number two. Jesus is the Son of God. Again, we've touched on it, but let's make it a little more clear. Jesus is equal with God, verse 18, but notice again the language that Jesus himself uses in verse 17. He starts off by saying, my father. And we see this further in verse 19. Look at 19. Truly, truly, I say to you. And that means, hey, wake up. That's what he's saying. Pay attention. This is really important. and son they have perfect identity of will and action again deity jesus is claiming but now we're looking at the second four in verse 20 and it's wonderful end of 19 for whatever the father does that son uh, likewise does why okay, what's the reason for this foundational unity for the father loves the son oh and we should love that it is love that is at the very heart of this whole thing. And it is actually love that demands the deep thinking that we have been doing about the nature of God. It is love that demands that God be three in one in His very substance and essence. And one of the main Christian truths that the world has tried to take and twist and make its own is 1 John 4.16. Right? The truth that God is love. Where does the world get that idea? What other philosophy, what other religion reveals fundamentally that God is love? None of them. This is a distinctly Christian, biblical idea. And it is a distinctly biblical, Trinitarian idea. For to love obviously requires that there be an object of that love. There must be a lover and a beloved. And unless we want to argue that God needs us or is dependent upon us and so he creates us so that he can love something, no, for God to be independent outside of time and love from all of eternity, then he must be triumph. God cannot be unless he be one in three. And thus we see that love, again, is at the very foundation and heart of reality. From all eternity, the Father perfectly loving the Son. The Son, likewise, perfectly loving the Father. And again, not love as we've so ruined and redefined it today. To love me, you have to accept me and affirm me and celebrate me no matter what. No, that's not love. But love as other-focused, good-seeking affection. Love is to be oriented around another. It is delighting in another, seeking and serving that other. And here we see, and here, this is the true deeds. Here we see that in some majestic and mysterious way, this is true of and for God himself. The Father loved the Son. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 17, you get some of those wonderful words in the whole of Scripture. We hear the very voice of the Father, which is a very rare thing, actually. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then that, that's love. I am well pleased with you. Parents, do your children know that you are well pleased with them? Do you communicate that to them obnoxiously and aggressively again and again and again? 
I don't have any sons that I can be well pleased in. Um, but this is what I have for my daughters. These are my beloved daughters with whom I am well pleased. <laughs> They're my life, my focus. I am oriented around them. I am for them. I exist to seek their good. And, oh, they bring me so much pleasure and delight and gladness. I, that's only the barest reflection of the great truth that the Father loves the Son perfectly. And look at the rest of 20. Look at it. For the Father loves the Son. How? Again, how does that... Love does something. How does that love demonstrate itself? How does that love manifest? And shows him all that he is doing. Here is love defined as full disclosure and total openness. The oneness of God is incomprehensible to us. In the Godhead, between Father and Son, we have intimate and complete communication. The Father shows all and shares all with the Son. That's love. Here again, we see how communication is at the heart of communion. Again, husbands, I'm I'm picking on you today, I guess. Take note. I said this last week. I'm the chief of sinners here. This is love. Communicate to commune. Reveal to relate. The intimacy and health of your relationship will be in large part dependent upon this. And so here we see the only perfectly healthy and perfectly intimate relationship. The Father loves the Son and perfectly reveals Himself and perfectly communicates Himself to the Son. And consider that and connect that to John 17, 3. We're going to come back to that verse again and again and again because I'm convinced that I need to convince you of its truth and importance. Eternal life, life is knowing the only true God. And if that's true, then we desperately need and should desperately desire to know the one perfectly knows the one who is eternal life. Life is found only in the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all. Therefore, life, all, is found in the Son who perfectly knows that Father. What is God like? Jesus, look at Him. The Son reveals the Father and the Son reveals the love of the Father and that love most graciously reveals itself in His gracious giving of life. Point number four. These last two will be so brief because this is what we're going to do next week in great detail in verses 24 through 29. Jesus is going to just take these points and then unpack them further in some heavy stuff in 24 through 29. Point four, Jesus is the sovereign giver of life. Second half of verse 20. Jesus makes this claim about these greater works. What can be greater than the supernatural healing of a man crippled for 38 years? Years. Verse 21. Here's our third four. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. It's a huge verse. More next week. Notice first how this is another claim to deity of equality with the Father. The Jews understood that only God can give life. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. You see, the Jews understood that God, as the creator of life, is thus rightly sovereign over all life. He and he alone has the authority and the power to give life 
and to take it away. It is all in his hands. And again, here is this Jesus claiming that divine prerogative as his own. Oh, by the way, that is in my hands. The Son gives life. Catch who he gives it to. To whomever, not to whomever wills, not to whomever exercises his free will. The Son gives life to whom he wills. And that's sovereignty, which is what the text says. That's the power. That's chapter 1, verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but were born of God. We'll we'll cover this in Sunday school in great detail in a few weeks when we get to chapters 9 and 10 on on free will and effectual calling. But for now, it's pretty clear in the text. The Son gives life to whom he wills because he's God. Because God is sovereign. And life is entirely in his hands because he is life. And that's why in 17.3, Jesus doesn't only say that eternal life is knowing you, the only true God. He adds an and. Knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's the verse right before that? John 17.2, the Son speaking to the Father. You, Father, have given him, me, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We've seen this again and again and again. This is the theme of the first four chapters of the book. Jesus is life. Jesus gives life. And this is the reason that Jesus has come, that they may have life and have it to the full. What a claim. Again, consider the claim. Jesus is saying, hey, that thing that you are all looking for, life, the good life, a full life, fulfillment in life, joy in life, that thing that everyone, everywhere is always seeking, that is found only in me. If you want that, if you want life, you've got to come to me. What arrogance. Unless it's true. And yet, this is what Jesus is doing. He's confronting them, and he is confronting you. If what he claims is true, then this confrontation is such a kindness. Here's who I am. Here's what you find in me. And thus, here's what you lose if you don't find me. Because also, point number five, Jesus is the judge over death. He's too sovereign judge over death. We could just combine these two. Again, this is next week. But quickly look at 22 to whet your appetite. We've got the fourth, four. Add it there, 22. Four, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Another explicit claim to deity. The Jews knew that judgment belongs to God alone. Jesus says, hey, that, by the way, that's mine. Judgment belongs to me. So, again, only the thing that only God can do, I do that thing. A whole week on the unpopular doctrine of judgment next week. Because Jesus is going to emphasize this. He talks about judgment a lot. It must be important then. And it is. Think about it. What if there's actually a God? What if if this is true? What What if what he reveals about himself in his word in John chapter 5 is true? What if he's perfectly holy and altogether good? We understand that to be with him, that to be with perfect goodness, we have to be perfect, right? We get that. He doesn't grade on a curve. It's not pass-fail. It's not if you're just 51% good and only 49% bad, you're in. It's not how it works. Have you seen just even a little glimpse we've gotten of who God is in these few short verses? How great 
is he? How, how grand and good, perfect in power, perfect in love. How then could any wickedness, any evil, or anything less than abide with him? It can't. And that then creates a great problem for us. That creates a great problem for me. Because I am not good. And if you are honest with yourself, you know that you are not either. And that means then that we are necessarily separated from the one who is perfectly good. The one who is life. Which means that all of us, apart from him, are dead. Spiritually dead. And if he is the judge, as he claims here, then you will stand before him. And you will give an account of every thought and word and deed. Again, deep down, we all know this. This is where the guilt and the shame that we all carry comes from. This is where the drive and the desire to prove ourselves in the eyes of something, to live up to some standard, uh, to be seen and affirmed as good by someone. Uh, This is where that comes from. We know that there's a standard. We know that there's a judge. We know that we should, but that we don't live up to it. We know that we will give an account and that we don't have much to show for ourselves because we fall far short of perfect. That's why we so desperately need the previous point to be true. That's why it's such good news that the one who is righteous judge is also the one who is gracious savior and giver of life. Because that's our only hope. This Jesus is our only hope. We don't have the life. That means that we are dead. It's simple. Dead doesn't do. Dead cannot do anything to earn or gain or produce life. Therefore, our only hope is for that life to be given to us by grace. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. The Jesus who is life. Again, did you catch the the, the Jews' response to Jesus in verse 18? This is the first mention of the plot to kill Jesus in the whole book. They are seeking the death of Jesus, the Jesus who is life. And that's the very reason that he came, to give his life for us in our place. We're only two chapters away from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Again, how is that? How does believing in the son bring life? Because God gave his son to give his life in our place, to take our death, to pay our debt, so that we could be forgiven and so that we could live. And that's, that's the gospel that we proclaim every single week. And it's all the more amazing the more we understand who this Jesus is. It's not just some guy. He's God himself, the all-glorious creator and sustainer of all, the creator entering into his creation, God becoming man, life taking on death to serve us and save us and to restore us to relationship with him. And so again, consider the claims of Christ as we close. And just a couple short verses, Jesus has said, I am God, I am the Son of God, I am perfectly loved by the Father, I perfectly know the Father, I am the sovereign giver of life, I am the judge over death. What if all that is true? then there's no one else like this Jesus. And there's nothing that you need more than this Jesus. If he is this, everything depends upon this. If he is this, then point number six in your application necessarily follows. You must worship and honor Jesus. We read verse 23. We're done. Four, 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 four. All of that 
that, here's the purpose, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If the Son of God, the revealer of God, loved by God, if he is all those things, then you cannot know God and love God if you do not know and love his Son. It is only through Jesus that we get to be God. And this is why we've got, we have to be gracious but clear on this. Anyone who is claiming to worship anything they call God, if it does not include the worship of the Son of God, if it is not entirely filtered through the worship of this Son of God, as revealed here in the Word of God, then it is not God that they are worshiping. They may think that they are honoring God, but by disregarding the Son of God and failing to honor the Son of God, they're actually dishonoring God. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how relatively good you are. It doesn't matter how socially active you are. None of that matters apart from the Son. He's the dividing line. He is God himself. Come to us. And if he is one with God in essence and activity, then he must be one with God in worship and honor. Jesus is our litmus test. Everything depends upon him and what you do with him. Do you know this Jesus? And the Jesus of John chapter 5. Not Santa Claus Jesus or therapist Jesus or cheerleader Jesus or activist Jesus, but sovereign God of the universe Jesus. Do you know him? And do you love him? Because the Father does. Should we not most love that which the one who is perfect in knowledge most loves? This is logical. We please the Father most when we are most pleased in the Son with whom he is well pleased. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, good, I hope, please, that's important. Are you pleased with the Son? And that's what it means to honor him. It means to value him. Do you value him? Do you see his infinitely superior worth? And then does how you live your life reflect that? Is there desire and delight to match the professed belief? Because look at him in just these few short verses. How could there not be delight and desire for that? Who do you say that I am? John chapter 5 has shown you who Jesus himself says that he is. Does your response reflect appropriately his glorious revelation? Do you believe? I pray that you and we will all find life and joy and peace in this Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us now. I'm done. Our only hope is your spirit working by your word. We thank you that your work does not cease ever. We thank you that you are always sovereignly and providentially ordering and arranging and working, saving, confronting, challenging, comforting, encouraging. Father, whatever needs to be done, For each of our hearts in this room, we ask that you would do that work um, by your spirit in accordance um, with this word. We ask simply as we so regularly sing that you would show us Christ, that you would draw us to him, that you would give us a great love and affection for him. Father, forgive us for how little we often value the one who is infinitely valuable. And we ask for your help 
And we ask that you would progressively mold us and shape us and change us um, to live in accordance with this wonderful revelation you have given to us of your wonderful son. Father, help us to love Jesus as you so perfectly love Jesus. And we ask and we pray all this in his name. Amen.